The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Joining us for the week trending, Orla Ryan, news correspondent of The Journal, and Lorcan Nine, head of training at the Communications Clinic. And I want to start, Lorcan, with a story from the Public Accounts Committee yesterday because there was some very interesting information given as to the number of our immigrants from Ukraine who were in full-time employment in the country. Yeah, yeah, so the Secretary-General of the Department of Social Protection and was in, was being asked questions, yeah, and talked to 17,000 Ukrainians in full-time employment in Ireland. goes up to about 23,000, 24,000 if you include part-timers, so that's about 30% um, of the Ukrainians who have come in and as the Secretary General would have pointed out given the circumstances given that a lot of the time it is women with children who would have childcare um, issues and childcare concerns as well um, that's a phenomenal number um, an absolutely huge number and it shows that there is an absolutely huge desire to to work to find employment and to fulfil the gaps that we have in our society that are absolutely needed to be filled uh, by people like this and Orla also shows this idea that people are freeloaders looking to try and get free accommodation and social welfare entitlements doesn't really hold up to those stats does yeah, it? Yeah it really puts pay to that and, and John McKeown it was asked of him you know um, is this kind of usual or you know that was nearly put to him of like are they not so much sponge but basically that was put to him in so many words and he said no in their experience they're really not and the stats don't lie in relation to that that as Logan said there's about 24,000 um, in work between full and part time and given the fact some are women with children it just shows even in very difficult circumstances he said sometimes it's a woman in a small hotel room with three children she's still going out for a few hours a day and working if she can so that really shows you know the type of people that are coming in here and they are really trying to give back to Ireland. And was also interesting to I think it was about 125 of them are working in the Department of Social Welfare itself which is interesting, yeah, and a few of them are going to be deployed to elsewhere um, in different departments and across the public service, but they've obviously they've given them roles there as well, which is really interesting. Which presumably that's for language reasons as well, that this is, I suppose, when we have a new multicultural Ireland where about 20% of the people living here were born overseas, not everybody immediately picks up the language quickly and they need assistance. Exactly, and some of those people there are helping with translation of other people who come in. Obviously not everyone in the department may have um, a knowledge of Ukrainian, so it's great to have people there who can actually translate things as needed. The, the the situation that I think Orla p- picked up there in the question was I suppose the classic that you do see where it was it was put to the sec gen that I have heard of cases where people aren't inclined This was the to, Fine Gael TD mm-hmm. Colin Burke who asked these yeah, questions Yeah and then it was pushed back and Hypotheticals they, Hypotheticals I have Rumors. heard from a, yeah, a friend of saying, a friend of yeah. a friend people are saying people are suggesting which is what we always see in these situations rather than facts but I think there's, there's two points that I think are really important to be made in terms of well how do we progress forward There are 17,000 Ukrainian people working which there's now 17,000 stories, stories that the government have to get out there, individual stories that people will relate to, people will understand, and that has to be part of the communication strategy that has been really wanting up until this point. Mm. But the other thing is, is that we have to shift the conversation, and anybody who talks about it needs to be asked, what's your alternative to the fact that Irish society needs younger workers coming in? What's your alternative idea that is going to stop the fact that... To at provide the, moment, the tax revenues which will pay the pensions of the future. Right now... Present. Right now, there are four taxpaying workers for every pensioner. Within 30 years, there are going to be two for every pensioner. That's very, very soon to our future. I can think of no other solution bar welcoming these people who want to work. But we need to be pushing anybody who's saying, yes, 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 but not now. Yes, 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 but not here. To say, okay, when? What's your alternative? What are you going to be saying in 20 years? What are you going to be saying in 30 years? So there's been a flaw in the communication here. Well, actually, Heather Humphreys brought this up in the doll yesterday. She said migrant workers in key sectors of health, hospitality, food processing and others paid, guess how much in PRSI last year? Three 
billion euro and 17 billion euro over three years and as she said that helps fund the pensions and other welfare payments but she been a bit though perhaps provocative when she questioned how people can attend anti-migrant demonstrations during the day while most other people are at work I don't like that now either. That's the same kind of attitude that, that we see consistently where, look, oh, you've nothing else to be doing or if you were working, you wouldn't be. I don't think you can you can go bias v. bias here. But I think the first they part of that... They could have been night workers who were on their daytime they, going out doing their protests. There's lots of protests well, that happen during the day. The stance that some people do say also of like, oh, well, Ukrainians are fine, but it's people from other countries we have an issue with. I think that's very problematic as well. And we're asking, well, what's the difference if... Sorry, that's know, underlying racist, isn't it? It is, it is. And if it, an asylum seeker needs housing if a homeless person needs housing they are a person at the end of the day it shouldn't matter where they're from Exactly. Okay, well let's move on to something else. We're having a referendum in March, which we're not going to get into debating that now because we want to set up all of our referendum coverage on a 50-50 basis, as is the requirement. But there was some interesting stuff in the Doyle this week. And let's hear a little bit of Minister Rodrigo Gorman explain why a polygamous relationship would not be considered durable in terms of the upcoming referendum on the family amendment to the Constitution. A polygamous polygamous relationship would not be protected under that. First of all, because polygamous relationships have never been recognised under Irish law. And secondly, because a polygamous relationship is not one that that that, that represents a fundamental unit group of society. And it is not one that represents a moral institution in Irish law. that, 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 and it is not one that it represents as, as, as durable. So, would the, the, the very, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the very clear policy intention of the government is that, uh, whether it's a polygamous relationship, I've heard the words troubles thrown around, these sort of relations, troubles, troubles. Oh, sorry. Troubles. Yeah. No, I did not. I did not. Yeah. No. You're getting hungry. Um, but that, that issue has come up in some of the debates, so we're very clear such a, such a relationship is not covered within the concept of durability and it's not covered in the expanded concept of the family. Okay, this is a bit like Matty McGrath and Adrian Lynch of RT at the public, one of the accounts committees last year, and who you're loyal to. So this confusion between truffle and truffle. Michael McNamara thought it was truffle but it wasn't. So you explain that to me now, Larkin. <laughs> I, uh, some, some questions I'm not sure have an answer, Matt, as much as I will try. I, I didn't hear truffle, but then when you hear truffle afterwards, you're like, oh, maybe I could see how perhaps he did In the context, I think you're being very generous. In the context, I don't know how you would assume truffle over truffle. Yeah, I would have thought, yeah, with the context of the thing, you, you could have guessed or perhaps queried and asked. So, yeah. look, But explain right. truffle to me, please. A truffle is like a couple, but there's three people. So you might remember um, about a year ago, Una Healy, there was speculation that she was in a throuple with David Hayes and his partner. He was the boxer. Yeah, yes. he, he, she laterally came out and said it wasn't a throuple, but then there was confusion over he seemed to have two girlfriends. Don't really know how it worked. But generally, a throuple is three people in a relationship. So they're all on board and in a relationship. But how can Roderick O'Gorman say that that might not be durable when you have a government made up of three partners at the moment in Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil and the Greens? That's questionable, yeah. I mean, is that a durable relationship? But basically, um, um, you know, it was put to him in the doll. It was kind of almost insulting to say, well, throuples aren't durable relationships. How do we know you could be in a throuple for 20 years? Is that not durable? Yeah, and it does come to a wider thing, I think, sometimes where 
we still find anything to do with sex or anything that's a bit unusual that we would see as unusual or unconventional in a sexual relationship as almost funny or something to giggle at rather than that's just how people live their lives and should we not let people live their lives the way they want? I but do the they more... deserve protection in the law and the constitution if they have an unconventional living arrangement? You said Morgan. we weren't allowed to argue with that. You're right. I'm just asking a rhetorical <laughs> question. I think the more substantial point that was being made by, by the minister was that the, 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 within law, the polygamy um, in terms of relationship, which is obviously a young yes. Is, 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 is so there's the most yeah. substantial point and look at all of them from people now very simply asking questions in advance of the referendum so that they can guide the debate a very kind of old school communication technique I'll throw questions and we'll make them discuss it and deny it on my terms which is what's clearly happening here Okay, tell us about the world's oldest dog please Orla well, we believe we knew the world's oldest dog, but maybe we didn't. Um, yeah, so there was a dog um, from Portugal from um, called Bobby, and basically he was crowned the world's oldest dog at 31 and a half years. So he, at the time, he was the world's oldest living dog, and then when he passed away, he was deemed to be the oldest dog ever that had been recorded. Um, there were some questions at the time because it was very unusual to have a dog, particularly that breed, to live to 31 years and a half. Uh, typically, um, Portuguese Mastiffs, they live till they're about 12 to 14 years old, so he had more than double that. A lot of vets at the time said it was very unusual and they kind of questioned photos of him over the years that were meant to show how old he was. They were saying like his paw colours had changed and stuff like that. And then this all led to, which you know everybody's hair and fur changes over the years but seemingly there were questions over whether or not it was the same dog. And then Wired back in December, um, the tech website they did kind of a deep dive into this and they looked into the case and basically it seemed as though the owner just sort of said he was that old and he had registered him with a website but didn't have any actual factual proof that the dog was as old as he said he would was. So basically now uh, Guinness have said they're looking into it so they haven't quite stripped him of the title but they have suspended it for now and they're undergoing investigations as to see whether or not Bobby was actually 31. It was a shaggy dog story. Okay, we have to take a break. We've lots more to get through including are the bros deliberately trolling the new True Detective show because it is helmed by two women on screen. That and more after we've had this break. Lorcan Nine, the head of training at the communications clinic and Orla Ryan, news correspondent of the Journal, are with us. Orla, tell us about the Rotten Tomatoes ratings for True Detective. First of all, tell us what Rotten Tomatoes is for those not familiar. So, Rotten Tomatoes is a website where... Um ordinary people can go on and rate films and TV shows and critics do as well so basically you know if it gets a really high percentage of let's say 90% you're more likely to go and see it in the cinema if it gets a lower percentage you might give it a miss um, so basically what's happened with this is there's a bit of a disparity between the ratings for the latest season of True Detective between what the critics are saying and what regular viewers are saying now in fairness the regular audience score is at 72% which is still quite high but the critics' um, score is 92%, which indicates like quite a large disparity. And there is often a gap between what critics think and what audience think. But um, the showrunner, Isa Lopez, kind of came out and said, it's unusual there's such a gap. And basically, she was making the point on Twitter, she thought it was because this is the first time the series has been fronted by two females rather than two males. So she said, basically, fans of the franchise who preferred earlier seasons that were centred around male characters were deliberately coming onto the site and giving it bad reviews. Would they be really 
really that petty? Yes. <laughs> I will say it in one word, yes. They probably would be. It's happened before with things when there's reboots. Well, indeed, Dan says here, text, the review bombing of True Detective has happened to a few HBO shows over the past few years. Watchmen was one of the best miniseries ever produced, but people couldn't handle a non-white female lead. Watchmen was terrific, actually. Uh, you didn't see that Lorca, I no? didn't know once again you asked highly recommend entertainment or music and I have very little to say uh, Aristotle though talked about the, the virtue of the multitude which is better known as the wisdom of the crowds and I think if you look at Ron Tomatoes very very often it is the death knell to Aristotle and that argument being incredibly wrong the public is very often wrong uh, the wisdom of the crowds doesn't often exist and so I think really if you're looking at Ron Tomatoes oh, so you're, look, su- you're supporting the elite critics are you? Yeah, I'm all about the critiques the gatekeepers there's a reason why <laughs> the Oscars aren't just a public vote there's a reason why the Irish Sports Awards are no longer a public vote you need experts to tell us what to think sometimes um, and in this case for Rotten Tomatoes I think let's trust the experts who actually know what they're talking about when it comes to television rather than some person who is annoyed that a woman is playing a detective It's a very binary decision on Rotten Tomatoes anyway isn't it you either like it or you don't Very much so I mean you can kind of give more nuance in, the, in your word your review underneath but very often people are picking this is absolutely terrible or it's the best thing I've ever seen so you know it's kind of interesting because sometimes you get bad reviews back to back of someone saying it's the best thing ever and then someone else saying that you know don't watch this it's absolutely terrible there's a lack of nuance and pettiness on the internet so that, that's Shocking. what we're that's really? what we're, we're yeah. revealing really today. yeah <laughs> okay and one something else that uh, provides amusement on many occasions or exasperation for others is the carry on in the British royal family and the latest row is apparently over how Harry and Meghan dared to use the name Lilybeth for one of their children. Why is this regarded by royal watchers as being somehow offensive, Orla? So basically, when Lilibet was born, the newer Lilibet, three years ago, um, Harry and Meghan came out and said they were calling her Lilibet Diana in honour, obviously, of his mother and grandmother. Um, they said at the time that they had sought Queen Elizabeth's permission, that she was seemingly very happy with this. She thought it was a lovely tribute. So why did, why did permission be required? Because she's the Queen of England and I think if you need want to breathe you have to ask if you're a member of the family, uh, evidently. So uh, basically that's now been disputed. Uh, Robert Hardman has a new book out on King Charles where he said that he quotes staff members as saying Elizabeth was the angriest they've ever seen her when the name was announced that seemingly she was not asked for permission. She was informed afterwards that they were doing this but in their statement they had said they spoke to her and you know that she had agreed to it and thought it was lovely. Obviously she has since passed away. We cannot ask her. Not that we would get a direct answer anyway and the royal family given that they're kind of locked in this well, I don't know. Maybe we could organise the seance or something like that. We could get like a Ouija that. board out and you know see if there's a yes or a no. Um, so Lilibet the name comes from Elizabeth herself being unable to pronounce her name when she was a young kid so that's where the little bit comes from God Larkin they get worked off of us such petty things in that British royal family don't they, they, they they're, they're like fans of True Detective season 4 <laughs> they, you know, but the, there's two I think the, the within this it's that she was very very annoyed that they said they asked permission when they didn't I think rather than that her grandchild was given the name I not they're both pretty petty but I think that's what she was maybe annoyed about is that more understandable because it was in her view if this is all true that it was a lie being told I don't know and then apparently I think the permission was because it was that kind of nickname that only very few people called her and therefore 
But yeah, it she, is very. She's funny. quoted in some articles as saying, "The palaces aren't mine. The paintings aren't mine. The name was the one thing that's mine, and they've taken that." Now, whether or not she actually said that, I I don't know. It if doesn't sound very believable. It doesn't does sound it? very believable. So I feel like there is still that narrative being pushed of like she let's pile on Harry and Meghan. Yeah. She was queen for a very long time. I would have thought some other things probably happened in that time where she should be a little bit angrier than her grandson and saying that he asked permission when he didn't. Yeah. Okay. Now, what's all this about the Emmy win for Ao Edebri and the speech she made about Jenny the donkey? For preparing for that, um, I lived in Ireland, Ireland, for about uh, four months, and uh, I got really in character. Um, I was on all fours for four months, and it was really painful, but beautiful as well. And it was probably the most fulfilling part of my career, and I'm so happy for everybody going to the Oscars, even though I deserve the nomination more than anybody else, because I was obviously a donkey for four months. Um, oh my God, sorry. I literally... I was there, you know what I mean? I slipped back into it. Yeah, but um, it was very fulfilling. It was very fulfilling. And I want little girls out there everywhere to know that they too can be a donkey one day. Emmy winner from The Bear, Io Debris. What's all that about? Yeah, well, as you've heard there, I don't know what possessed her to do in the first place, but I think a lot of people are very glad that she did. She was being interviewed on a red carpet last year at an award ceremony, and she just broke into the accent that we just heard. Uh, she's very good at many things, but perhaps an Irish accent is not one of them. I don't, uh, I don't think it was bad. It wasn't the worst, it wasn't the best, but she's obviously more used to playing donkeys than doing Irish accents. So, um, But I, I, I digress. So she basically, she's very much leaned into that since then. There's been a lot of memes calling her Irish, so basically uh, a few things have happened since then in that she's called out, you know, the people of Derry and uh, Dublin and, and all over from the, you know, award stages. She's been uh, accepting awards for the bear and uh, she's kind of, she did quite a funny thing uh, last week. She was uh, listed as, she's nominated for the Rising Star Awards at the BAFTAs, which are, of course, British. And then she kind of leaned into the whole, other oh, claiming another Irish star. <laughs> which was quite enjoyable. And there hasn't been any righteous indignation on our part, has there? Uh, no, I can provide some if, 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 if you'd like. <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> Uh, no, yeah, I think I think everybody seems to be quite enjoying it. And I, I think those Ronnie jokes are, yeah. are nice and it's a bit of personality. It's a bit of fun. I don't know why famous people don't do stuff like this a bit more, actually. They seem to live less joyful lives. I love than how much could. she's leaning into it and she's like, she's Instagrammed a couple of things like Oscar Elga. She's obviously like... Where is she from? Uh, she's from Boston, yeah. Okay. So uh, it, Boston it, Irish. Boston, there could be lots of Irish people around her, yeah. Okay, well, what's this about Madonna being sued? Madonna is being sued by two people who went to her concert. The concert was due to start at, I believe, half eight. It did not start until half ten. Now, I don't think there's anybody fainting over that news that a concert might start a little bit later. But they are suing Madonna basically by saying that it was false advertising. Um, that they had to get up to work in the morning, that they weren't out until 1am, and therefore it was harder to get a taxi, harder to get public transport, and this is false advertising, it is not what was provided, and so they are suing uh, Madonna because of that hardship, which is obviously ridiculous, but then at the same time, when you kind of break down logically, like, technically she was two hours late, should they get a refund? I don't know. It's one of the most American things I've ever heard, suing someone over a concert being delayed. I think we've all been delayed at things, maybe not by two hours, but I, I, I do think it's quite funny. It just You wouldn't get away with it at a concert in Ireland because all concerts have to be finished by, what, 11 o'clock, don't they? That's most true. Locations. If they were two hours late, you might get a solid 10 or 15 minutes and have to hit the road, so... Yeah. Are they suing Madonna personally for the damages? 
I'm not sure. I think I presume they're not suing a person. I presume no, it's I think they're the suing yeah, the, the production company or the promoter yeah. or whatever. But um, it would be interesting to see if they get any damage damages. I presume they won't, but who knows? It would be very fun precedent if they did. Everyone yeah. would be on time. Okay, Things very briefly, better. Venice. Either of you ever been to Venice? Yes. Okay. Day trip snob, you have to get tickets to get in and out. Yeah, so you have to buy a five euro day ticket if you're going between the hours of That's the cheapest thing. Have you ever bought a drink or a bit something to eat in Venice? Exactly. You'd probably spend about ten euro on an ice cream scoop, so a five euro to actually get into the city is not that bad. Um but there are some issues with this. Basically it's to try and deal with um the large tourist numbers and obviously uh Venice anyone who's been there it very often floods. It was flooded when I was there. Um so they're trying to reduce tourism numbers, but they haven't put a cap on the numbers and also because it's only five euro to get in. I don't think it's going to dramatically reduce the amount of people who um, who go there. So it's it's meant to reduce tourist numbers, but there's no cap on how many people can go. And you know, technically, you could go and not have a ticket, but then you could be fined a couple of hundred euro. Magical place to go. I have to leave it there. Thank you very much, Orla Ryan from the Journal, Lorcan Nyan from the Communications Clinic. The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from four thirty. Today.